John Hendrickson first shared his story about living with a stutter when he wrote an article about then-presidential candidate Joe Biden for The Atlantic. The article went viral. John Hendrickson had spent his life hiding the fact of his stutter and all of the pain and shame that accompanies this reality. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. There are some 3 million Americans who stutter in the United States. That's about 1% of the population. Even so, most people don't really understand this disorder. For decades, teachers and therapists had a one-size-fits-all approach to trying to correct or disguise stuttering. It's a subject that's misunderstood and for which the perpetuation of that misunderstanding remains today a problem for those who stutter. It's also a topic that isn't covered much. After John Hendrickson's article went viral, he began to receive emails from other stutterers, from therapists and teachers and researchers and others, all thanking him for having at last covered such a topic. He's received a thousand such missives. And now, three years later, he's penned a book about his own story. I spoke to John Hendrickson about his book, Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. I'm a reader who always reads the acknowledgments in a book first, and your acknowledgments section is like a masterpiece in itself. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. It, it is. <laughs> Very kind of you to say that, and I'm admittedly feeling insecure about it because I know it's pretty long and pretty detailed, but my line of thinking there was, okay, what if I never write another book and this is my only chance? So I'm just going to thank as many people as I possibly can. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm telling you, it's like a masterwork on how to compose one. And I hope... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, because I'm definitely insecure about that. Mm-mm. I hope everybody who reads this book will spend some time with it. It's really something of a look into not just the people who influenced you or supported you, but the people who contacted you after the Atlantic piece came out. But... I mean, you acknowledge walking and independent bookstores, and it's like this whole look into this long journey um, that that you were on. I just feel like, wow, like, I don't know. It was just so, it was something special. I just have to say that up front to you. <laughs> I always read the acknowledgments first, no matter what. And so I was, I read that and I was ready to go <laughs> dive into the book. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I often read the last page of a book first. <laughs> Just because uh, I like to know where it's going. <laughs> I've done that. I can admit yeah. it. <laughs> well, so Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. The seedbed of the book is this article that I mentioned, the article that you wrote for The Atlantic about uh, Joe Biden's stutter back when he was running for uh, president. And in it, you wrote very honestly about your own life, and the piece went viral, and it basically then led to this journey. Uh, and the result is this book. I feel like in some real way with the Atlantic piece, you had essentially uh, already crossed 
that Rubicon, and then you were on to this other kind of uh, of journey with your story. But is there anything that still surprises you about that initial reaction to the Atlantic piece? Uh, is there anything that where you're still sort of shaking your head? I mean, this whole process of writing the book is one thing, but is there any sort of surprise still for you about anything, any reaction to that article? What surprised me and touched me the most about the reaction to that article was the openness and honesty and candor with which total strangers were suddenly emailing me their own life stories as people who stutter, parents, people who stutter, husbands, wives, people who stutter. Some of these emails could be a thousand words long, just totally opening up on the first interaction. And that really moved me. But it wasn't only people who people who stutter that were reaching out to me, people with other disabilities and mental health issues, all sorts of lived experience. They were just telling me about their lives. It, it made me think that there was possibly a book here because this topic of digging into something you've been repressing, I think there's some universality in that. I think you can apply that across many aspects of life. And I hope that my book resonates in that way. You don't have to be a person who stutters to read this. You don't have to be a person with a disability. It's really a book about life just told through this one prism. I have found that to be true. You know, this book is so incredibly well-researched, and it is full of these examples of others who have this disfluency. But something else about this book that that you're talking about is that it's so resonant. You don't have to have a stutter. You don't have to have any other sort of disfluency. And yet this book is just so beautifully written. It's so poignant. It's so mesmeric. I mean, I just have to say it just carries you along. The way that you write about uh, your childhood, for example, in particular, puts us all right there vicariously in so many familiar situations. I'm thinking about when you describe um, the second grade, the second grader wedding receptions, <laughs> those <laughs> lunchtime dances in Miss um, Sampson's class where she cranked up the oldie station on the radio. And you could just be one of the kids dancing in front of the whiteboard. And then this idea of like the read aloud round robins. I mean, as you know, in creative nonfiction, we say that the more specific and personal a detail is in nonfiction, the more universally resonant it can be. So on the one hand, I can relate to the a lot of these situations 
even situations with little rooms as a mother, and then also, I remember in my childhood, but also perhaps these childhood issues where, you know, we've we've all gone through the some kind of abject misery and self-consciousness or feeling like we don't belong or feeling like an outsider. You draw the details so vividly in this book that it is a book for everyone. It is a memoir about childhood and so many other things. It's about love. It's about all kinds of things. So it's not a, you know, sort of a very esoteric academic treatment of uh, of stutter. It's really just a, a gorgeous and resonant story. I want to ask you about that, about digging in so deeply to these school experiences and things with your friends and so many teachers too. Did you find that the more you scratched at the surface of things when you were working on the book, then the more anecdotes and situations were just sort of busting out of these, you know, boxes that we thought were were closed up, these childhood memories and assignments and kind and friends and those kinds of situations in a classroom. Thank you very much, Yvette. I, I really appreciate everything you just said. It, it means a lot to me. Yes, absolutely. During the course of reporting, researching, interviewing, outlining this book, I went back as far as I could and did as much personal investigation as I could. Some days that meant reading old journals, old emails, looking at old photos, visiting old places I used to live. Other days it meant reaching out to my kindergarten teacher or my second grade teacher or my sixth grade girlfriend, people I hadn't talked to in 20, 25, 30 years, reaching out out of the blue and saying, remember me? Could we possibly talk about this one thing we never talked about. And I had no idea if they would remember me at all. I had no idea if they'd have any recollection of my stutter. But they all said, yes, absolutely. And they had these vivid anecdotes, true crystallized memories of just the way I I was in class, the way I talked, the, the person I was as a child. And it completely blew me away. And it really filled in the entire picture. David Carr's memoir, The Night of the Gun, in sp- 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 inspired me to do that. David Carr is a late 
New York Times media columnist. And his book is about his life, but it's it's about his addictions. And because of his time as an addict, he he didn't have these clear memories. And so he went back and he was asking people, what was I like? And I just thought that was such a cool idea. And I knew I wanted to try it. It sounds like such a, a neat opportunity. I mean, I think we can re- reconnect with people like our elementary school teachers sometimes through social media or something, maybe, or we run into them if we're back home or something. But I, f- I was really taken with those moments with these teachers where, as you say, they had these very crystallized, these very solid memories about you in that space of the classroom and interacting with you or even attempting to mediate the best that they could in any kind of situation. Um, You know, teachers are so besieged. They have to see to so many things and so many, so many students. And, And then I think about more generally the way that that people think about a stutter that people believe you can just get rid of a stutter or have speech therapy and be done with it and so you know people will say like as you describe in the book take your time or just concentrate and for a small percentage of people who stutter that's just really not helpful and that's not a remedy. It's not going to help things along. So I feel like your book also, while it's just a book for everyone and so resonant and so beautiful, those scenes with the teachers also m- made me think about how the book does help us understand more about stutters and disfluency. It does help us. I won't say that it that it gives us tools and we're all you know, prepared in this world to, if we encounter a person with a stutter, it's, it's all good. I'm not saying that at all, but it does offer us so much that maybe we didn't realize because there is a stigma or because we don't talk about it. The scenes in New York City where you mentioned that in, in a place like New York City, you didn't have to, you wouldn't get the look if you were what you describe as the look, if you were blocking or something. There are situations where where people are just engaging with you as they would with anybody else. But I feel like the book is instructive in a way, too. It's a, a gorgeous, poignant story, but it also has so much information about stuttering that we might not ever otherwise encounter. Thank you very much. Um, my goal with this book was exactly as you said. It was not to write a science book, not to write an academic book, but to write a memoir that felt true to life, that contained some of these elements, some neuroscience, some biology. And I tried to weave in what we know and what we've learned about this disorder just in recent decades, 
there's been leaps and bounds of new knowledge. But I tried to present that information, for lack of a better word, call it vegetables. I tried to give the reader that part of the story through the lives of other people and occasionally through the life of myself. And I interviewed over 100 people for the book and those conversations just blew me away. They taught me so many things on many different levels and challenged my pers- my perspective on Sundarian in a lot of cases. And so many of those people became friends and they're such rich characters and we just see the multiple dimensions of of these folks and just so, some so beautiful i mean yes so deeply researched but what comes through is uh so many other stories like this is your story but it's just like this multi-layered thing with so many other stories and there are stories here about music i'm going to ask you about music because i think i know this about you you love music it's very important to you and i appreciate so many of the references to music all throughout the book and i felt like in some very real ways your love of music helped you forge your writing career even and your father was an influence too in your writing but you found your way to writing, and it seems to be, I don't know, the key to the universe. I don't know, in some way, this the music, but writing about music and then writing you and your creative nonfiction class, for example. Can you talk about that, about writing? It's not just your livelihood to be a writer. I just feel like I always tell people, I'll spare you the details, but I always tell people that books saved my life. I wouldn't speak for you and say that writing saved your life, but I certainly feel like writing is so so important in your world, and I wonder if you can talk about it. You're totally right. Both writing and music are my two biggest passions. When I was in middle school, my and got me a subscription to Spin Magazine. And then shortly after, I subscribed to Rolling Stone. And I would read those cover to cover the day that they arrived. And I began going to concerts at an early age. And I played drums in high school and was in some ragtag high school bands and college band. But both music and writing have always been my balm and my release and kind of an oasis. There's a part in the book in which I write about being 13 in the nosebleeds at a U2 concert. And 20,000 fans are all singing Pride in the Name of Love and Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and all these beautiful songs. And 
like virtually every person who, person who stutters, I don't stutter when I sing. And that's brain chemistry. It's a different neural pathway that we use when singing as opposed to talking. And so nothing has made me feel freer than being at a concert and yelling, singing every word to every song in a large group of people. And today, I love karaoke. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can get up there and even if I'm the only one performing, I can. I, I don't even worry about the prospect of stuttering. So I think I brought that love of music to writing. And when I write, I'm extremely conscious of rhythm of syllables of the way that certain words sound back to back. And my goal is always momentum, just clarity and momentum and just trying to keep the reader moving forward. So I think that there's absolutely a symbiotic relationship between loving to write and loving music in all its forms. I was thinking about that with the prosody somehow in your book. It's so exactly what you say. It's just so clear. It's it's so crystal clear. I, I was reading some of the pages out loud to my husband, as I do sometimes just if I'm really into something and I want to share it with him and I'll start to read aloud and as I was reading it out loud I, I could really perceive the prosody and not necessarily the musicality or the lyricism but that too it's just, it's just gorgeous very gorgeous writing and I, I want to ask you about Dr. Courtney Bird from Austin she's a, a very different kind of speech expert and her approach is I don't know if controversial is the right word, but it sort of puts the onus on everybody else in some very real way in, and not on the speaker. So the, while the idea is sort of to build up the confidence of the speaker and her idea is that communication is not about fluency, but it's about so many other things in the speech event between the speaker, and the listener. I just found her so fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Bird? Dr. Bird is absolutely fascinating. For decades, pretty much all of speech therapy was focused on curing the stutter, focused on holding up fluency, as the only goal, the end-all, be-all. Fluency is just a fancy word for smooth speech. And many people who stutter will never reach a place of high fluency. And they go through years of therapy and get really down on themselves because they keep doing all the techniques, everything, but fluency never comes. Only in the past 20 years or so, and really only in the past 10 years, has there 
been a movement away from holding up fluency as the only goal. And therapists like Dr. Bird really are leading that charge. Dr. Bird's goal when treating any patient, be it a kid or teenager, adult, anyone, is to build their communication skills, such as eye contact, confidence, clarity of thought, build up their desire to communicate at all or participate in daily life at all. And she pushes this message that it's okay to it's okay to to stutter and what matters is the the content of what you're saying dr bird a few years ago received this 30 million dollar legacy grant I, I, i believe i'm getting the dollar amount right i may be wrong from Arthur Blank, who's the founder of Home Depot, he himself is a person who stutters. And he gave he gave Dr. Bird this money to establish this facility at UT Austin. And usually big checks like that come with a big overarching goal like eradicate stuttering, cure stuttering. Dr. Bird tells the parents of all her new patients, there is no cure for stuttering, which is a pretty radical thing to say. But it it makes her a very compelling professional in this field and a compelling character in my book. She is that. I, you know, I was thinking about how it's really not, maybe it's really not counterintuitive at all. I always feel like when we're in any situation, all we have is who we are, how we look, how we sound when we speak. And that's what we give over to the world in so many situations all day long. So it was sort of like this moment when I was reading about her of, well, that totally makes sense. <laughs> Um, I want to ask you uh, one last question about, based on this, what you share about Joe Biden's debate coach. He was a man named Michael Sheehan, and he told you about the two gifts that a stutter gives you. One is immense empathy, and the other is a, a certain kind of anger. And I was thinking about this book is maybe about an anger or a low emotion that can somehow be reconciled or tempered by that gift of immense empathy. What has been another gift that your stuttering has given to you? I'm sure there are many if if we want to think about it that way. And it's not maybe it's not that unusual to ask you that question, but what would be one thing that you'd want to share? with us today about that? That's one of my favorite quotes in this book. And Michael Sheehan's one of the nicest 
warmest people I've ever met. And he's the last person I would ever call angry at all. <laughs> but I think he's made peace with those negative feelings that come with being a person who stutters and making peace with that really is my personal journey through this book. One pivotal moment in my life was buckling down and finally going to psychotherapy around the age of 30. Clearly, I had been to other types of therapy as a kid, but I had just never gone and done regular therapy, for lack of a better word. And the reason I did that was because I felt that resentment and the anger weighing me down inside. And I didn't want to walk around with all of that in the pit of my stomach. So going to regular therapy as an adult and beginning to talk about repressed <laughs> feelings and moments of childhood, etc., really lightened my load. And it really helped me relinquish those <laughs> feelings of resentment and anger and brought me toward a place of peace. I think making peace is an active daily practice. I don't think you ever truly get there unless unless you're Buddha or <laughs> Dalai Lama or Ram Dass. But I think for most of us, it's, it's an active practice. And just to answer your question about what other gift does it give you, it's made me a better listener. It's made me a more patient listener. It's made me want to truly commune with the person when talking with them, not just waiting for my turn to talk or not just work in a quick witty joke or comment, but to really engage with what another person is trying to tell me and then respond. And I think that has fostered more meaningful conversations as I've gotten older. John Hendrickson, thank you so much for talking to me today and this book. What an honor and a thrill to get to talk to you today about this book. Thank you, Yvette. I was honored to talk with you. I really appreciate coming on your show. John Hendrickson is the author of Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. It's published by Knopf. John Hendrickson is a senior editor at The Atlantic. John Hendrickson's on a book tour sharing his inspiring story. He'll be in conversation with Austin Cleon in Austin, Texas, at Book People on January 25th at 7 p.m. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>